Hello and welcome to another episode of Marriage in a Tightrope. I'm Alan. And I'm Katie. And we're still married. We have a great interview with Jim and Pam. Well, what? Is that their real name, Katie? That is not their real name. So in this episode, it's going to be groundbreaking for us because we've never talked to a couple in this in this space before, but this couple is mixed faith, but they are also mixed orientation. And so due to the sensitive nature of this topic and the fact that only a handful, like five to six people know about where they're at in their relationship, we have decided to keep them anonymous and they have chosen their names to be Jim and Pam, one of our all-time favorite on-screen couples. Very cute couple. Yes. So just know that going into the episode, their real names have been protected, but I am so excited to share this interview with you. We would love, before we get to that uh, interview, we'd love to say happy holidays, Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year. We are releasing this just before the new year, so we hope that 2020 uh, can just go burn in hell and that 2021 goes better for everybody. And to be honest, we didn't have a terrible 2020. It was a pretty good year for us, uh, all things considered, and we're looking forward to, to this new year. We'll have kind of that you know, mixed faith marriage resolutions for a new year episode coming up here pretty soon in the next few weeks, but we just wanted to wish everybody a happy new year. That's right. And we also wanted to talk about the upcoming class starting January 19th. We are going to start our next workshop on a tightrope. We have a couple of spots available. And thankfully, we have a very generous donor who was in the last group who wants to um, sponsor a scholarship for a couple. So if you are in need of um, a scholarship and you're interested in taking the class, please reach out to us. Um, through either Facebook or Instagram, or you can email us at, at marriageonatightrope at gmail.com. For those who are just starting to listen to this podcast and haven't gone back in time, this is a six-week mixed-faith marriage course. It's not only taught by Katie and I. In fact, it's primarily taught by Natasha Helfer, who, if you are not familiar with her, she is an incredible marriage and family therapist who is also a certified, certified sex therapist. In this six-week course, Natasha teaches us so much, uh, understanding what a faith transition even is, how to talk to family members, how to communicate and and increase intimacy with not just your spouse, but with others around you, how to negotiate the tenders. So, you know, Katie bought me a coffee machine for Christmas, for example, and it is wonderful. And I have stinky coffee breath as we speak. Uh, we're sharing the same microphone. This was a bad time to, to go away from two microphones because mm-hmm. I stink. But all those types of things, uh, talking with, with leadership um, as well. Th- this course is, is absolutely jam-packed of such useful information. The, the kind of the hidden secret of the usefulness of this class is all of the couples that you get to spend time with and hear from them directly. There's 25 total couples in this group. So far, it's filled up every single time. We expect that to be the case here as well. We're just about there. So learning from those couples and them learning from you is a really great experience. We feel like we've cheated the system because we get to be involved every single time. <laughs> yeah, we do love it. And, you know, I we realize that there are couples out there who maybe don't want to be in a group setting. Not quite ready for it. Not, yeah. right, not quite ready for it. Maybe wants to go at their own pace. So we have that option available also. We have everything pre-recorded. And we have a couple people who have already signed up for that. And you can just do it on your own mm-hmm. time. 
So that is also a great way to uh, take the course. And if you want more information and you want to sign up, you can go to marriageonatightrope.thinkific.com. All right. Enjoy this episode with Jim and Pam Halpert. We would now like to welcome to the podcast my favorite on-screen couple of all time, Jim and Pam. Welcome to Marriage on a Tightrope. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're so excited to have you you both here. And this is great. Usually with, with our interviews, we... We meet up and 10 minutes later, uh, we meet up on a Zoom and 10 minutes later, we're recording. Uh, then we get to know each other even better through through the interview itself. But with Jim and Pam, we did a little bit more of like a Zoom date night. <laughs> we, we got on a Zoom a few weeks ago uh, before Christmas and we're able to get to know each other a little better and talk about uh, how we wanted this interview to go. Uh, Katie? How excited are you for this interview? Yeah, I'm, I've been <clears throat> waiting a while to to do this The ever since the very first time that we got an email from you. And then um, that first initial contact, we've been excited to to listen to your story. And I, I feel like this is a taboo subject that people don't talk about. I think you guys have a really beautiful story and perspective. And I think that it's going to hit home and resonate with so many people. And I also think that it's going to be interesting for some people to just listen to something different that they've never heard before and maybe connect with that. I think for some of you, it will also be maybe a little bit eye-opening and it will teach you something about uh, showing love and compassion for couples perhaps in this situation sometime in the near future if you if you uh, ever are in the space to do so. So we are very excited. Thank you, Jim and Pam, for being here. We are going to dive right in. Tell us about you, you and your family. I just grew up as a very Orthodox Utah Mormon. Um, you know, we went to church on vacation and I never drank caffeine until I met Jim and, you know, just different things like that. Very, very strict household, but it was wonderful. And I loved that. And it was a great place for me to be and found a lot of peace and comfort in the gospel. So it was pretty good. <laughs> I don't know how much more detail you want me to go off into. So I, uh, I also, I grew up in a loving home, but my experience, uh, in the church was very different. I, it was very scary for me growing up. Uh, it wasn't, I don't think the typical upbringing that most people experience when they, they, they grow up in the church. I had, had a father who was active to keep the peace in the home. And I had a very, very orthodox mom, almost to the point where it's was, it was like almost fundamentalist, uh, where religion was used as, it was viewed as a threat. It was, it was used, uh, she would use it as a scare tactic. Fear was a, a part of, uh, of my upbringing. I don't think it was intentional. It was just given my particular situation, I took it as a, it was a very scary experience. It was very traumatic, uh, growing up and, the reason why is because uh, I'm bisexual, uh, and so I knew from a very uh, young age, growing up, that I was I was different, and I struggled trying to find out where I fit in, not only in my in the gospel, but also in my own family, because I I felt like I was a liability, uh, a threat um, to them, 
And I was just, I was terrified as a, as a kid. I didn't know what was happening. So my experience was very different than Pam's. Yeah. So at what age did you realize that you were bisexual? Uh, I knew that I was bisexual when I met Pam because uh, I was attracted to her. I knew I was different probably when early, maybe middle school. I just, I, I noticed that I, I view things differently. I, I found uh, I was attracted to members of the, of the same sex. I didn't understand why, um, but I knew from a very young age. And what were the things that you heard in your home that led you to believe that you wouldn't be accepted if you had told your parents how you felt? I, I, I grew up in, and I say this, it's, it's hard to say because I do feel like my parents genuinely loved me um but it was a homophobic home jokes about gay people were made all the time my older brother was uh, a tormentor to me and in some ways i think he, he i've never come out to him but in some ways i think he he knew and he used that uh, against me he uh, the word faggot was used all the time growing up I remember there's a couple of experiences where I just, uh, I knew you, you have to keep this to yourself. It's really important. You can't let them know. One time I remember my mother was speaking with my grandma and I just heard her say, I am so glad that none of my children are gay. That was heartbreaking to me. I was like, she has no idea that one of her kids is gay. And then uh, probably the one where the, the experience where it scared me the most was uh, I remember my I, my older brother and I, we got into an argument and he called me a faggot in front of my, my dad. And my dad, he's usually, he's very calm, mild, uh, mild tempered. He lost it uh, on my older brother and I won't use the actual language. But I just remember he went after my brother and just was screaming at the top of his lungs. He said, my son is not an effing faggot. He's, uh, he just repeated that over and over again. And in some strange way, I was actually like proud of my dad for sticking up for me and defending me. But at the same time, I knew that I would never be able to tell my father because I knew what he would think his son was. And so... Um, at that, it was at that point where I, I, I knew that my position in the family, whether I belonged or not, uh, it was vital. It was vital for me to keep this to myself. And as you were, so gosh, how many times will we pause and say, I mean, thank you for sharing such intimate details of your, of your upbringing and of your life. Here's number one. We'll take, take a tally. Um, so as you're, as you're growing up, you know, pre-marriage, pre-mission, how did your interactions and relationship with the church work? So you, you, from a very young age, knew kind of who you were. I assume you understood that that was very much against what the church says you should be. What was your relationship like with the church? It was, it was scary. There was a a lot of unknown. I would go to church and I'd sit in primary. I'd say the things I was supposed to say, but inside I just had absolutely no idea where I, I fit into the big picture. Uh, I can tell you I wasn't singing I'm a child of God because I didn't feel that way. Because at that time, 
the church wasn't really distinguishing between homosexual behavior and the individual. They weren't separating them. So it was all one. And as a kid, to be told that you're an abomination in the sight of God, I mean, that, how do you process that? How does Heavenly Father come across as a loving father who will do anything to get his children back when you're told that he hates you? You're just scared. It's not a safe place. At any point, did you feel any type of like hyper religiosity? Because I think that some people feel like, you know, and this is a common a common thing said by by those who um, have have these feelings is that if they, you know, work hard enough, if they pray hard enough, if they do all of the things, they'll be able to initially. And I'm going to put in quotation marks, pray the gay away. I've heard that phrase say said over and over again. So is that something that you felt you could do just by staying in the religion and working really hard? Or did you recognize that it did not connect with you? I developed uh, a really, it was very unhealthy. I became a toxic perfectionist. I tried to excel at everything because I was so worried that if my parents found out, if my friends found out, that that was going to give them justification or a reason to get rid of me. And so I thought if I was able to develop all of these other qualities, these redeeming qualities, that they would be able to overlook that and say, well, at least he has these things. It's not all bad. And I, it, it drove me mad. I mean, yeah, I got good grades. I, I performed really well. Uh, in school and in other areas, it's that's probably that is probably where the source of my depression and anxiety uh, started. I've actually never pinpointed that. But as I was answering that question, I think that is where it all began. Was this sense that I have to justify my existence? And so, yeah, I prayed the gay, uh, tried to pray the gay away. I tried to work it away. I tried everything I could to get it to go away. And I get so frustrated when people tell me that, you know, this is just a choice. I'm like, this is not a choice. Back then, if I could have paid any amount of money or done anything to get this to just go away, I would have done it in a heartbeat. And it got so bad that uh, it ultimately, uh, it, it almost took my life when I attempted suicide. Uh, and that was uh, while I was on my mission, trying to get right with God or you know, to get it to go away. So you, you went, at least in part, you, you wanted to serve a mission because you felt like, hey, maybe this is how God will end up taking it away is if I go and serve. Yeah, and there's... It's also, it's strange in that you don't know where you fit in, but you're trying to fit in. You're trying to get in the, uh, the door. You're trying to find a seat at the table. And this is one of your ways of doing it. You, you want to be a part of the group. It's not that you want to, to leave. You, um, you want to you want to feel that love. You want you want to know. Like I hear so many people talk about their wonderful experience growing up in the church. I wanted to feel that. I had no idea what that felt like. So, yeah, I tried to push my way in. 
Well, and to me, it sounds like you were overcompensating for trying to fit in and also trying to make your family happy, which that can also lead you down that road of doing the mission when maybe you don't necessarily feel like it was a right fit for you, but you're going to overcompensate because like you said, you wanted to just fit in with your family. And that, that seems so, it just, I hear this and I want to hug you because I, it just seems like so painful to me. And I want to go to the suicide attempt on your mission. What were you sent home? And then did you return? How did that work? Yeah. So I always, I, 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 I speak about my, my suicide attempt uh, very rarely. I only opened up to it to Pam about a few years ago. I actually held it more as a, a, a guarded secret than my SSA. And I always begin by describing it that my greatest success in life is a failure. Uh, is that I, 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 I ended up living and I am very grateful for that. But uh, when I was in the MTC, I this my toxic perfectionist mentality went into overdrive. Uh, I was trying to learn a, another another language, and I expected perfection because I was so worried about failure. And so the SSA wasn't the reason for my suicide, but it was definitely at the root of uh, it, it, the foundation, or, you know, where I was mentally at that point. And so I had um, taken uh, an entire bottle of pills. I remember uh, my companions and the people in my district had gone to go shower and get ready for the the evening. And I was just there in in my room. It wasn't that I wanted to, I wanted to die. It was that I wanted the panic. I was basically going through a panic attack and it had been lasting for several days where I just wanted it to stop. Uh, just this, this pressure, this, this, you're not going to make it. You're not, uh, this, the, the road ends in failure for you. Mm. I just wanted it to just, I just wanted to sleep. And I knew that the only way that I could act uh, in my mind, I knew that there, I look back now and there are so many things that I wish I could have told that boy. Uh, it was like, you <laughs> don't have to learn this overnight you're going to be okay uh you don't have to be perfect i wish i could go back and tell him that so i i i took these pills i and i went laid in bed i closed my eyes and i knew that that night was my last night on earth i knew i was not going to to wake up again i did wake up it was probably i think it was like four in the afternoon the next day and my, my companions could tell that something was wrong. Uh, and so I was taken over to the urgent care. And a, uh, a nurse, I couldn't even talk to her. She started asking me questions and she had a suspicion. She asked me, did you take anything to do this? And my eyes just welled up with tears. And I just nodded my head yes. And she left the room, didn't say anything to me. I was taken over to the emergency room. Luckily, I was able to recover from that. From that point on, there was an intense amount of shame. I was so embarrassed by what had happened. Uh, I, I hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, I, I hadn't committed a sin. I hadn't, you know, I, 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 but I felt like I was an absolute failure. 
my mother came to pick me up from the mission. And that's the only time that we had we've spoken about the suicide attempt until a couple of months ago when I asked her about it. It was just the, that one interaction. I remember when I had to go pick up my stuff from the MTC that everyone knew what had happened. My, my privacy had just gone out the window. So I had to go pack my things in front of everybody and they all knew what I had done. And so I went home to this day. I do not know if my father knows about my, my suicide attempt. I mean, he had to know something because one day his son's on a mission, the next day he's not. Like, what, what's going on? I was made to feel like I had to uh, hide it. I was told to tell people that I had stomach problems, and I even told Pam that, uh, that I came home because of stomach problems, because I was, people equated it with the, a sin. I, I, had, uh, I was a failure. And so I did go back. Uh, I got a mission reassignment. And I remember when I got back, I was called into uh, the MT, uh, the count, uh, one of the counselors for the MTC president, his office. I went into the office and he wanted to make sure that I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to be a problem uh, in the future. And he, I remember he took his hand as if he was holding a bottle of pills and made the gesture of taking it to the mouth and uh, dumping them down your throat. And he just said, we're not going to have any more of this, are we? There was no, we're so happy. We're so happy you're here. We're so happy that you, uh, uh, you're alive. What can we do to help? The only thing that was done was I was sent to see a psychiatrist for a couple of weeks and then sent back. It was traumatic. There was no opportunity to heal, come back from that. I, had, I wasn't allowed to process it. And so I buried it. Uh, so deep that I convinced myself that it didn't, it, it didn't happen. And I never talked about it until a couple of years ago when I spoke with Pam about it. Is that when you started, I mean, you're, you're bearing all these things about yourself, about how you really feel, and you're certainly not getting any compassion from those around you, which is just so awful. But is that when you felt like the depression got worse did you stay on the course of having panic attacks? I mean, what did it do to your mental health during that time? I, I was in survival mode. And so it wasn't on my mind all the time. But it, yeah, it, I just became numb going forward. I, I participated in church. I, I said what I was supposed to say. But inside, it was just there was, there's absolutely nothing nothing there but the the body doesn't forget and so yeah that depression that anxiety it, it continues I, I'm always on the defensive um, I'm always worried of you know again feeling like I have to justify my my existence my belonging and it got to a point where it was just the depression it was so bad that it was interfering with you know just the everyday aspects of my life I would come home from work just exhausted I would just fall into bed I couldn't do the simplest of things and something inside me started just stirring up I mean these trapped emotions that had been that have been there for years just dormant finally just came alive 
and they started rising to the surface. And that's where I uh, dealt with the, finally acknowledged the, the SSA. I said, this isn't going away. There's like, there's, there's, I knew at that point, there is nothing I can do that will ever take this away. And so finally, I just, uh, I opened up and started telling a few people. And when I did that, it, I immediately regretted it, but at, at first, but after I started processing it, 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 it felt like I could breathe again. Like I, I literally, like my show, I was standing taller, um, to actually say out loud to another person and to have it go into another person's ears that to say, you know, I, uh, I have SSA it was just extremely liberating. Uh, even if I would have received a negative response, it's, I still think it would have been liberating, liberating to be seen for who I truly am. No, thank you. I, I would like, love to ask Jim before we want to go back to you, Pam, and uh, get back into the timeline of how you met and all of that. Jim, I do want to ask one thing because you've you've used the term SSA a few times, yeah. same sex attraction, and I think that those many of those who have transitioned away, I I think would benefit from understanding your point of view and your perspective of why do you say I have same sex attraction rather than I am bisexual. Many times those that have transitioned away or those that are highly sympathetic to LGBTQ look at the church's use of that term SSA and they get upset about it. I'm just saying like, no, this isn't something I have. It's not a problem. I'm not saying you're saying it's a problem, but that's a lot of, a lot of the time how that term is, is taken. So help us understand why that is a good term for you an appropriate term for you. Well, I interchange the terms. I don't always just say I have SSA. I, I'll, I'll sometimes I'll say I'm bisexual or I'll, I'll even say I'm, I'm, I'm gay. Uh, it's because I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know exactly how my identity fits within, uh, within the church. But labels aside, I would say that this is a part, a, a part of my identity, it, 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 of who I am internally. It's, uh, and I think that's why I take it so hard, why I take it so personally when I hear things or when I, when I go to church, um, or this belonging, uh, issue is that I feel like whenever somebody says something negative or they say something hurtful, even though it's, it's unintentional, they think what they say is actually helpful and loving when it's really not is that I take it very personally. So, or when I hear a, an apostle speak, it's like, it's, 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 he's speaking to me. So I struggle with the terminology, but it's part of who I am. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Pam. Pam, I wanted to ask you, I want to talk first about of your initial meeting with your spouse. How did, you know, how did you meet? What attracted you to him? And how long was it before you decided this was a good fit and we're going to get married? So we met on a study abroad program and mm-hmm. it was so fun to meet that way. Um, none of real life existed. You know, we just got to be together with each other every day on a bus for hours. And it was so fun to get to know him. Um, there were so many things that attracted me to him. He is super kind. Um, he 
we became very, very, very good friends and friendship was the basis for all of this. And it was just his ambition. I have never met anybody that at we, he was 19 when we met, I was 20. So yes, I robbed the cradle, but um, <laughs> he had ambitions and goals and things that he wanted to do in his life. And I had never met anybody that was that put together. <laughs> um, and <Sweet>. so I thought, <laughs> but, but he has some amazing things that I absolutely loved about that. And so um, it was just a great chance for two months to spend every day with him four hours and, you know, travel in this bus, see in the world. And it was incredible. So when we were on our study abroad program, he got his first mission call. And so um, we came home from our program and he left right pretty soon after when he left, I thought, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if I went on a mission too? Cause then we could get home at the same time, roughly. And, um, then he came home and I had prayed about it going and the answer was no, it's not the right thing for you to go. And then he went back out again, you know, after his stomach problems were resolved. And is that what you thought too? They were stomach problems. That's what I was told. Yes. So that's what all I knew is that there were some stomach problems. So, um, and then we left and we were on missions at the same time. And it was awesome and wonderful to be able to say, hey, I'm training right now. This is what it's like. And, you know, all those kind of things that we just got to do together through letters. And then we came home two weeks apart from each other. And um, then I flipped out about getting married just a little bit. The whole idea of one person forever, like a long time. What if you get sick of me? And Anyway, I, I got over that and um, I knew that he was the one that I wanted to be with. And I remember the night before we got married, I was chatting with a friend and I said, this is everything that I ever wanted in a relationship. He was just everything that I, you know, wanted to be. He was so kind and so caring and always there for me. And it was great. So we got married and had some kids. Then, um, oh. what <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I love that. Uh, I think that it's really cool that you got to be friends first, right? Mm-hmm. And then you spent time writing each other and you came back and it, and it ended up working. Uh, Jim, is that how you felt? You felt like it was just a really good match and a really good friendship in the beginning. And then it, it turned to something else because how do those feelings change for you as someone who identify identified, I'm having the same sex attraction and then now feeling like, Oh, I could be bisexual. Like what was that experience like? So I remember the first time I saw her, I I met her on the very first day and I still remember what she was wearing. Um, and what she looked like. And I, uh, that's one of my most favorite memories because I knew that I, I was attracted to her from, from the beginning. And just to add a little thing right here, one of the things that frustrates me the most is when people who know my story tell me, it's like, you're just, and they, people say some really mean things to bisexuals, even from within the LGBT community. They're like, you're just denying who you are. You just, you haven't, you haven't figured that out yet. Or you, but the only person on this planet who's qualified to answer or to know who, what I want 
is me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew from the beginning that I was attracted to Pam. I wanted to get to know her. And I fell in love with her probably within the first day or two. It was, and it wasn't, it, it built upon the attraction. There was a, there was a light uh, around her. I wanted to have what she had. Uh, the, just a genuine uh, goodness. Just, uh, I, I, I love the way she laughed, just the way she smiled. It was just, uh, I, I wanted to feel what she felt. I wanted to know what she, uh, she knew. And the fact that she reciprocated and, you know, um, was kind to me back and was friends with me. I really hadn't felt that before. And so I felt very safe with her. Uh, and I knew I wanted more of that. Yeah. And I mean, clearly it worked out. You've been together for how, for how long? I mean, 20 years, 20, that is 20 years now. That's <laughs> more of my thing. life has been with him than without him. Yeah. Yeah. So Pam, um, take us to, I mean, I, I want to address, do, did you see in the first however many years before you actually sat down and talked about all of this, did you see any hints? And maybe, I think hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I think you can go back um, after you know something, you can go back and see those moments where maybe he was giving you hints about who he really was, or maybe the depression he suffered, or uh, any of these things. Did you have any idea that there was anything amiss with him? So I knew that he had depression and anxiety. That was very apparent in our lives. And I knew that he struggled with the church, but I had no idea why. And so when we finally had our conversation, it's been almost four years now. um, I was completely blindsided. 100% had no clue because obviously, you know, we've had really great sex life and you know that just wasn't in my it wasn't even on the horizon nothing whatsoever but that finally made sense like there had been so many things that had happened and knowing this finally just made a lot more sense and so I was so glad to be in the know now than to not know because I just kept hitting walls and I couldn't figure out what was going on but we were also very scared at that point because we thought it was the marriage was over i thought she was going to want to leave and she thought i was announcing that i was leaving. that's why i thought he told me this is why i'm telling you and now i'm out the door the idea that he would want to tell me and stay in the relationship as that was you know i i hadn't processed that that was a possibility that's why I thought he was telling me. And the reason I told her is one, I came to that realization that this isn't going to change. It's it's just the way the way it is. And I I was stuck. There was no progression. And I finally realized that if you're going to go forward, uh, you know, heal from this, you got to be true to who you are. You've got to show her who you are. And I, I struggle with whether I should have told you in the beginning. I know people that this is a controversial topic, uh, because there is deception there. It's, uh, she, she didn't marry the person she thought she did. But at the same time, I didn't really know who I was. I knew that I loved her and 
in our case, and this doesn't work, this, sadly, this ends tragically for a lot of couples who are in our situation where one spouse comes out after a number of years in the marriage is that the marriage ends. I struggle with it because in a way I'm glad that I didn't um, come out to her then because I don't, it wouldn't have lasted. There's no way our marriage would have continued uh, or our relationship. Um, because I, I, I didn't fit the mold of what a good husband or a, a good Mormon husband would be. We both didn't have the, the maturity level to, to process it at that point. And so I'm also okay with it because I have a still a wonderful relationship with my wife and I have amazing children um, and a very good life. So for us, it worked out and that's that it, it's not the same for everyone else. Um, I think ours is kind of one of the more unique uh, situations. And Pam, we, I mean, we, I want to hear from both of you about, you know, how you've gotten to the point where you're at, but in that moment, he tells you, I mean, we've had the conversation of, Hey, I don't believe in the church anymore. What was that moment? For, you got a double bomb. And, it, and then I'm not even saying that Jim, you said those words, I don't believe in the church anymore, but Pam, for you was, was that the, what the conversation was like? It was not only am I really struggling with the church or don't want to participate anymore, but also I'm bisexual or whatever I'm defining myself as. How did you get past that, that fight or flight <laughs> response? So the church wasn't even a topic when he told me, okay. so he told me about the suicide attempt and I was actually more mad about that than the other stuff because it explained so many aspects of our life that I had been there for and, and I didn't understand. Anyway, that was really hard. He told me about the suicide attempts and then he told me about the LGBT stuff. The church wasn't even a part of it at that point. So, but that was a pretty big bombshell to say the least. And I didn't know, I didn't know if I should stay here and I didn't know if I should go. And I was upset and I was crying and I was like, okay, God, you got to give it to me big. Like <laughs> you, I need answers and I need them big. And, um, I went to the women's conference before a general conference and there was a talk that was given in there. Um, she read a scripture that Proverbs three, five that says, lead not unto thine own understanding and all things shall work for thy good. And I swear to you, it was a conduit straight from heaven, from God to me. And it completely enveloped me. And it said, this is where you're supposed to be in this marriage things are going to work out and it just healed things for me and I knew then that this is where I wanted to be and and it took some time for him to convince me that this is where he wanted to be does that make sense because I just thought that was the reason that he was telling me it's because he was on his way out the door and so once I understood that this was really where he wanted to be and not because I fit the mold of what life should look like. Does that make sense? You know, it, it was nice. And I wasn't just a, a trophy wife and, you know, that kind of a thing, but this is where he wanted to be. And that this is where I wanted to be. It was okay. And since that point, it's not 
that was such a powerful experience for me that I was all good after that. Yeah. Yeah. I also was, I wasn't announcing the, that I was leaving the, the church at that point. It was more of, okay, now, you know, will you help me figure out my place uh, in the church? Will you help me navigate this? Um, so I wanted to find out how to, you know, get what everyone else had. Like, finally, I have someone who knows who can help me figure this out. And our relationship, actually, it grew tremendously uh, at that point. We started having real hard conversations. I would tell her how I was feeling. The conversations were not fun, but we were actually talking about the real issues and there was progress. And it was over a period of time that my I, I knew that my place in the church it just it, it wasn't there. Um, I couldn't find any any comfort. Uh, there were things that were still frustrating me. I, uh, I I struggled with those same belonging issues. Um, so it wasn't up until probably six months ago that I decided I was, I was officially stepping away. Okay. So Pam, I wanted to ask, how do you find, and did you find together resources to help you? Was counseling on the table? Were therapy groups on the table? Did you have someone to confide in? I, I think that um, one of, and you mentioned this, Jim, how, how lonely it can be when you're keeping this in and you're not able to share. And then you can have these real conversations when you finally do share with your spouse. But what else, what other things did you do in order to feel or get support? So North Star has been an amazing resource for us. Um, it has just been life-changing. So that was really helpful. There were several books that they've written and there were a few other people that were in my situation, you know, that had written their, that Latter-day Saint Voices book was really, really helpful. Um, we have seen a counselor a couple of times, but um, that wasn't what we needed. We needed to work it out between us, if that makes sense. And, and I felt like we had the tools to be able to do that. It was just a matter of processing it all. We all, we also needed a community. Yes. So that has actually been huge. Um, Jim was able to attend some, uh, what should we call it? Um, just some counseling sessions. Well, a group thing. And he was able to meet. There's, there's a whole community out there of people just like us. And I didn't know that there was a whole community of people just like us. And that for me was life changing. We've also, been able to meet other people that are in our situation just like us and there was one couple in particular that meeting for me was was a anchoring point in that I wasn't crazy for continuing in this marriage and that there were other people that were able to make it work and that I wasn't alone feeling like I wasn't alone was huge <laughs> it was huge for me just being able, so your community actually, you know, being able to listen to other people that weren't exactly in our situation, but a little bit in our situation was so helpful because I didn't find that community in the church. And for the first time, I started to feel a little bit what he felt of being on the fringes and being on the outside. And it 
hurts. <laughs> it's not fun. And so finding you was great, but finding um, other people and friends that we have made is huge. In fact, I wanted to read <laughs> this quote um, that was really very, very helpful for me. This is from Neil A. Maxwell, and it says, the same God that placed that star in a precise orbit millennia before it appeared over Bethlehem in celebration of the birth of the babe has given at least equal attention to the placement of each of us in precise human orbit so that we may, if we will, um, illuminate the landscape of our individual lives so that our light may not only lead others, but warm them as well. And that's by Neely Maxwell. And finding that other couple that was in our place, just it, community is huge. <laughs> and it made everything okay for me again. Dang it, Neely Maxwell. That's a good quote. Shoot. I know. <laughs> and you guys are included in that little orbit, Katie. So, <laughs> Well, for any of you, and you guys can't see this, but Jim, you're wearing um, a sweatshirt. I'd like to think it was on purpose. It says, get used to different I wish that we could make a dress or I don't know, church attire that we could show up to church with that said, get used to different because rainbow pin tie. <laughs> That's right. Tie pin rather. I, I just, I feel like, you know, the stories, the story that you are sharing with us, the stories that we hear and we share on the podcast and then the individuals that we hear, it goes just mixed faith marriage goes much, much further beyond where people are just looking for belonging and acceptance. And those groups can be so helpful um, knowing you're not alone. And, you know, sometimes I wish that we would just drop the facade of everything is perfect. Everything is great. My life is exactly where I want it to be. You know, sometimes it is at times, but I think for most people, there, there are always going to be things that come up and it may not be this situation, but, uh, you know, I, I'm just so grateful for groups out there like North Star that can sh- have, have resources for for couples and for anyone who need it. I mean, clearly it's it, it's a need, and I just feel like that this is going to resonate with so many people. Uh, how when you so you're going through this, and and I want to go back to the 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 time where he Jim says I I can't attend church anymore. Um, Pam, was it just really obvious to you? Was that heartbreaking to you uh, on top of everything else? Or was it more of an acceptance? How did you feel when he said that? Well, obviously, um, my life is not going the way that I anticipated it. <laughs> things have definitely changed. And yes, it was heartbreaking. But things had been leading up to that for years. So when that point finally came, it wasn't a big surprise or a big shock for me. Um, yes very heartbreaking. However, since he has left, he is at so much more of a peaceful place. I'll take it. Hands down, no questions asked. Like we are at a better place than we have been in so long that um, it is, it's better for us. I saw the damage and the hurt and the heartache that was coming from it. And I would rather be where we are than where we were because we are just at a better place. Um, as far as those Mormon milestones and those, 
you know, tenders that you guys talk about, they're still tender. And, you know, we have things coming up that are some of those Mormon milestones that it's really hard um, that we can't be together for because I want my life partner there. But that is the reason that I wanted to talk to you guys because conversations have to change. The church has to change on this because I want a place for my husband at the table and I want him to want to be there and to be accepted to be there. And I can't go give this talk at church. You know, I can't get up right now and say what I want to say. And so that's why I wanted to talk to you because it is time that we make some big, big changes that make this a place where every individual feels welcome, faith or not, that Alan has a place to sit by you. If he chooses to be there, great, so be it. And that he feels welcome to be there in whatever space he wants to participate. And the same for my husband. (laughs) It needs to change. And that is why I was willing to push. (laughs) And when we say change, it's not saying that we doctrines need to change it's it's attitudes and and perceptions it's to remember the first and second great commandment those come first and then once you've established those deal with the other things it's the uh not feeling that you constantly have to remind people of the rules like (laughs) we need to stop showing compassion just as a way to remind people of what they can and cannot do. It's like, we're very familiar with what the rules are. Um, they need to stop being used to, to hurt, to push people away. That's not, that's not what the church is supposed to be. I mean, you look at Jesus's life. Who did he spend all of his time with? The outcast, the one, those who were alone, those who were despised. It's, that is that is what needs to change. We need to get back to more of that. And um, my leaving the church, people, I, I worry that people think when someone leaves the church is that they leave with anger and hatred towards the church. I left heartbroken and in mourning because this was every. This is all I've ever known. And I fought so hard to be a part of it. And it just didn't happen. And I, there's a couple of reasons why I decided to leave. One, it goes back to this belonging issue. And I have to recognize that the, the reality in my head, the stories that I tell myself, doesn't always actually reflect uh, reality. Everything's just, Given my upbringing um, and my experiences, everything passes through a negative filter. So I'm always on the defensive. And so, again, even to this day, I question whether I, I belong. And so, so I had convinced myself that this road ends in failure, that there is, that I'm never going to be able to justify my worth to God going through the church. There's always some, there's always going to be something wrong with me. And that was such, that took such a toll on my mental health that I finally just said enough. If I kind of took back the control, it's like, uh, if so, if, if it's going to end in failure, I'm going to be the one in control of that. I'm going to be the one 
who's going to say that I'm not going to make it because I'm so terrified of someone else telling me that I am not worthy in God's eyes, that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of his love. So I took back the control. And that's sad um, that I did that. The, the other reason that I chose to leave is because I still struggle with, uh, with depression um, severely. And I had reached out to a number of friends that I'd opened up to, people uh, in my ward and leadership positions. And I had shared some very deep and difficult things. I was uh, very vulnerable. And I let them know that you know, I was still struggling with uh, with suicidal thoughts, that I, I wanted to, and I was I was crying out for help. And the response I got was, it was, they were there in the moment for me. They were, they, they would say, you know, they would give me some comfort and they'd say, let me know if you, you need anything. But after that, it was just, it was crickets. Um, it was as if we never had the conversation. And then to have to go back twice and say, I'm still struggling with this. Can I get some help? It was, it's embarrassing and to do it a third time. It's just, it's the shame that comes from that is absolutely awful. And I finally realized, that, you know what, if I, if, if I'm on my own, I'm on my own. Say, like, I will, uh, I'll just do this myself. And so I kind of just, I stepped back and uh, figuring out, um, by myself between me and God. Do you have a relationship with your local leadership and who, who knows about your story? Yeah. Uh, in my, uh, our ward, there's probably three people who know, uh, my Bishop knows, uh, my elders quorum president knows and the second counselor and the Bishop Rick knows. Uh, and you know, as, I make it sound so bad. There are so many good things uh, that have come about too. I have developed some of the most cherished friendships um, uh, as a result. And in fact, this shirt, the Get Used to It, came from the second counselor and the bishopric who, um, he uh, he sees me and he just wanted, he gave me a Christmas present to let me know that he sees, he sees who I am. And that quote comes from The Chosen. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet, um, but it's an awesome movie about the life of the Savior and when he's calling Matthew to be one of the apostles. And the other apostles look at him and they're like, you can't call him. Do you know what he is? Do you know what he does? And he turns to them and he says, get used to different. And that's the quote from The Chosen. And so I thought that was just, such a very important thing is I think this gospel needs to get used to different. We got to shake stuff up a little bit. <laughs> so Pam, what does that look like for you on a Sunday to Sunday basis? Like those that are listening now who, because so many people like you, Jim are not very vocal about it. Like, what can people everyday Sunday pew sitting people do to get used to different, to, I mean, should they speak out? Like, what are some of the things that would be helpful for you to see as far as change in the church on a Sunday to Sunday basis? 
make it a welcoming space for everyone. Um, meaning that if somebody's not there, give them a call, say, how are you? Don't even ask about the church attendance. Just how are you doing? Being friends. You know, I didn't see you today. I missed you. What's going on? That kind of a thing. The inclusion would be really nice. But another thing is that when you're having those discussions about the family and about the proclamation and about those, talk as if there's someone who's LGBT in the room. Because guess what? Chances are there is somebody who is. And and having that distinction between behavior as in choosing, you know, to engage in those relationships or just your identity, having these feelings. There's a big distinction between having the feelings and choosing to engage in the behavior. And that distinction is not made. Um, you know, Jim has done a great job at being faithful to me and to our relationship. And, and I don't think that everyone is aware of that. Well, a lot of people aren't even aware of our situation, but just because he has those feelings and things doesn't mean he's acted on them and doesn't mean that he can't be faithful to me. Does that make sense? And anyway, so act as if there's somebody who's LGBT in the room, because if there's not someone who is, then there's probably a family member who, (laughs) who is there. So make it a space that's welcoming for everyone. And I'd say some of the greatest things that someone can do to help is you don't have to come with an answer for everything. I think people feel, you know, awkward. They don't, they're worried that they're going to say something that's going to offend or, or just make things worse. And that it's, it, that's not the case. Usually what people want is just to be seen to just have their emotions validated. You don't even have to agree uh, with their position on things, but just validate that what they're feeling is real and it's important to them. Uh, Sometimes the simplest thing that you can do is just listen, let somebody know that they're not alone and give them a hug. That's like 90% of the problems right there are solved. We always make this joke that you know, it's always said, take somebody a plate of uh, cookies. Yeah, cookies don't solve everything. Re- I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great cookies out there, and I'll eat them, <laughs> eat them to me. Um, and they actually, sometimes cookies are the perfect thing. But really, I think what we're doing is we're trying to feel or make ourselves feel better about this push to go and help somebody. It's like, we got to do something. So what do we do? We make them a plate of cookies, and then that's it. Cookie. It, trying to think of a different word than lazy but it's a lazy approach it's not really thought through what you could do is maybe take the cookies eat the cookies together uh and talk about it or send a note uh, with the cookies what people really want is is real response they want to be uh, seen not just on a superficial level i think every, whether you're you're gay straight whatever people want to be seen uh, they want to be known. In the church, I think we, we're a great social network, but we, it's almost as if we're, we identify as a collective group. We don't focus on the individual. And that does not lead to very good, meaningful friendships. Like if you want to get to know somebody, you got to read more than just the first book page of their book. There's an entire story there. You've got to take time to to get to know people. And so uh, one thing I wanted to just 
stress in this interview is, yeah, I've talked a lot about hard things and struggles and, you know, that it's been difficult for me in the church, but there are so many good things that have come, uh, come from this. I have met some of the most amazing men out there, uh, people who are loving and caring, who uh, contribute uh, to the church. They're loving fathers uh, and the people who are, who are not married, who, are, who are remain faithful to the, 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 uh, the church. They're just, it, it's increased my capacity to love tremendously i think i feel like i'm actually starting to understand what christ-like love is and i think members of the church if they could expand their concept of love that it doesn't have to just be between spouse the relationship i have with pam no one else will share that uh no one else will get that part of me but that's not it my ability to love other people isn't just confined to that. I have learned that I can love other men. Um, and there's nothing uh, unchristlike, unholy, dirty, or wrong about that. You look in the scriptures, you're going to find all sorts of examples where that type of brotherly love is shown. And so I've started to, it's these little shifts in perspective that have been so healing for me where I've started to go from viewing this as a curse that uh, I had done, I've done something wrong. There's some sin I must've committed to be able to have this to maybe, maybe God gave this to me for a reason, some unknown reason that I just, I don't fully understand yet. But if I look at it from that viewpoint, life is so much more, I look forward to it. I don't dread it. Once you change that perspective, you find so many things to be grateful for. Uh, you don't, it reduces the, the amount of bitterness that you have in your heart towards things that happened in the past. And I start finding things to be grateful for. Like, oh my goodness, isn't it amazing that I can tell uh, my friends about this and I'm not rejected? Uh, they tell me that, there's nothing wrong with you. They, they support me. They, 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 I belong. And I am so grateful to have a, a community uh, where I can feel that way. And I think there's a lot of members within the church who want that, who uh, they just need a little bit of help uh, getting there. Because when I first uh, came out, to the very first person I ever told, uh, he's my best friend. I was absolutely terrified that, uh, of what his response would be. Uh, I thought the friendship would end. The first thing he told me was, it doesn't change anything. I still love you. You're still you. There's nothing wrong with you. And every single person that I've opened up to, that's been their response. And so I think there's a community out there that wants to welcome members of the LGBTQ community. And it's just, how do we get to that point? How do we uh, get to where we feel safe coming out to people and that we, where we create an environment where people feel safe to come out to us? It's just, yeah, it's, 
it's hard, but there is so much to, to be grateful for. It's that is such a positive message. And I think that I, I mean, I know you're speaking about LGBTQ, but you can interchange that with mixed faith marriage. You can interchange that with um, someone who suffers from depression or anxiety. Everyone wants to feel the compassion and love and acceptance, right? And that's something that we can give to others. And and I, and I really like what you said about relationships between men, because I think that even as young kids, um, sometimes we treat boys differently, toughen up. Um, you don't, you know, don't cry, don't don't show emotions. When really, um, it's it's important for men to connect emotionally with other men as well. That's that's a and I'm and really I think it's amazing that you had that experience with with your best friend that nothing's going to change. I still love you. Yeah. My relationship with him, we've had a lot of difficult conversations, but that friendship has just grown into one where it's not superficial. It is a real meaningful friendship. And I had, I, I've learned lessons too, is that I've had to realize that every other men, straight men, they have, they're dealing with their own issues, their own, um, fears and their own heartaches and they're they're stressed out too but they don't have an outlet they they need this community just as much as as i do and so i fear that men in the church don't have the opportunity to really open up and be vulnerable with each other and share what they're feeling i've asked a couple people in my ward um my elders quorum president to to go on walks with me and my second counselor too trying to get trying to get a straight person to open up it's 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 pretty funny Uh, (laughs) but once they do it's like the floodgates come out at you and you're like oh my gosh pace yourself buddy you're gonna like let's take this one walk at a time but they need it they they need it too they need to be able be able to open up um to other men and one of the areas where I feel like I've grown the most is where I've realized that I focused too much on myself with this issue. It wasn't until I started, you know, turning outwards and trying to look at what other uh, men are going through that I really started to see some progress because when I was focusing on myself, I would find out that I would become so consumed with my bitterness uh that it would turn into also into anger and arrogance uh i would be like you know (laughs) men they just don't get it and it was uh i was like they sometimes i felt like they had the emotional intelligence of a potato because like they really they just don't get it and that is not a good place to be in because it completely discounts what these men are actually going through and so I don't like being in that area where I'm just, uh, I feel that bitterness, that anger, and that arrogance. And so it's turning outward. It's like, nah, we don't need to talk about uh, the fact that I'm gay. Let's talk about what you're going through. And you can still establish that same connection. And yeah, it, it takes time to build those friendships. You kind of have to walk people through it. Uh, uh, you know, you some men have to, they have to learn how to crawl before they can walk. But once they get there, it's, 
these friendships are awesome. On the flip side, Pam, let's talk about women, women's relationships, because women have a really generally like to connect with each other. You know, they have parties and they talk for five hours. Women are good at that, but what they're not so good at sometimes is passive Call of aggression. Duty. <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, is is sometimes like the passive aggressiveness that happens in the church, uh, avoiding issues completely, pretending like you know again everything is perfect, my life is great, and then also um, judgment, just uh, straight up harsh, harsh judgment. What have you found in um, your relationships with those you've shared your story with? And how has that helped or damaged? And what would you say to other women who are in this spot and who are looking to support someone in this role? How how do you do that? So for me, only my sister knows and one really good friend. And that's it. We have kept this very, you know, close. Um, my parents know now, um, but it has been kind of a lonely road. And I feel like sometimes in Mormon women, we're so focused on our families that we don't make time for friendship. And, you know, Jim has been really good about building up his community. And we realized in the last year that I haven't had a community (laughs) and that has been, you know, really lonely. Um, I feel like there's a lot of support for him and there, I probably haven't chosen to access the support that's out there for me, if that makes sense. And so this past year, I have tried a lot harder to build up that support because I've needed it. And it's taken an intentional effort to get there, to make the time. Life is so busy right now, you know, and and there's just so much going on. And so I think intentionally making time for other people outside of our families is a great and wonderful thing. Um, and that's been really helpful for me. What other questions? I'm sorry, you asked lots. And- no, just what would you, if, if if you had a friend that was in the position you are in, what advice would you give her in seeking help? Making time, I think, is the most important thing. And I do have a friend where we have made, you know, we don't even live in the same city. And yet we try once a month to get together to make that time. And it's taken effort. I mean, she's got kids. I've got kids. We're busy, you know, kind of a thing. But knowing that that relationship is really important and has been around for decades now has been very helpful for me. So I think just giving a listening ear and making time. You know, as we wrap up this conversation, I wanted to ask both of you. Well, you know, we've heard a lot of the hard, but what have been the wins in your relationship? And what advice would you give to other couples who find themselves in this space? There's been a lot of wins. I think that us getting to know each other on a much deeper level has been a very big win. Um, It has forced us to have some conversations that I think you don't have, you know, unless a crisis or something significant comes along. And so it makes you realize what is important to you and, and how you're going to make your relationship work. So having those hard, hard conversations is a, it can lead to very good outcomes. And I am so glad, you know, that Jim was able to open up to me and that I finally am in the know and that it just makes so much more sense now. A lot of these things. Um, what else do you think? I think it has given me the opportunity to heal, to actually become who I've always 
wanted to be, to find that environment where I belong. And she was she was the first one who showed me that I I I belong. I've always known that I belong with her. It's deepened our, our love for each other. I feel like I'm actually making progress with my depression, my anxiety. It's hard, but I'm you know, I have I have grit. And that's one of the things this SSA has given me is, uh, is, is grit. And it's shown me all of so many good qualities uh, in myself that I never saw before because I always viewed it in such a negative light that I had done something wrong. But it has shown me that I have the ability to, to, to love on a deep level. I'm a deep thinker. I feel pain when I see other people who are excluded. That really bothers me. And I want to, I want to use those abilities to help other people. I want to turn, take that focusing on myself and I want to turn that outward. And so as far as, you know, other couples or, you know, uh, another man who's dealing with this, or if you have a child who's dealing with this, you know, some things I would say is, one, you don't have to justify your existence or who you are to anyone. We talk, The church always talks about eternal laws that can't be changed. Well, guess what? God's love for you as an individual is an eternal law. No individual on earth has the authority to change that. So once you ground yourself in that, things look different. Uh, much more positive. It's a brighter outlook. Advice to people who are uh, have a loved one who's LGBT, a child, friend, be careful with how you talk to them. Don't ever make someone feel like they're a liability uh, for your eternal salvation. That's very damaging. Um, that puts a lot of responsibility on them because if they fail, you know, it really, do, do we stop and think about what we actually say to people when we, uh, when we say stuff like that? Um, let them know that, you know, let them know that they belong. Let them know that they're, they're loved. Then deal with the difficult questions. Sometimes you, all you need to do is, like I said, just uh, see them, give them a hug, let them know that you're there. Uh, yeah. That's the advice I give. Well, I feel like this has been such a, I think Oprah has a, a podcast called like Super Soul Sunday. And it's not, it's not Sunday, it's Saturday. But I feel very much like um, my soul has been fed in the connection to, to both of you and, and your story and just the vulnerability that you have shared with us because I mean, like you said, only a handful of people know, and now you've got an entire community that knows and has heard your story. And uh, I just, I just have taken, there's so much that I am thinking about that I've taken away from what you've said. And we just love you and appreciate you and um, are so grateful that you were able and that you agreed to do this with us. I think it'll touch a lot of people. And I'm thinking of those listeners out there who are not taking the actual plate of cookies out. You are listening because 
you know me or you know Alan, you have a loved one who's in a mixed faith marriage. Maybe you're just curious because uh, we have people that are plenty of people who are not even in this religion listening. And, and I would challenge you, like you, like, uh, Jim said to go out there and connect with someone and rather than take them to play the cookies, sit and eat with them. And a hug has to be involved and a hug has to be involved. And, you know, I, I have, I have a very, very good friend who listens and she is not in a mixed faith marriage. In fact, she is like the, the, I would say typical Mormon family, but she listens to every episode and then texts me about them. And, you know, she was recently called as, as the relief society president. And I, I just, I I think like she's going to hear these interviews. She's going to hear what people say, and she's going to use that, um, to make a change as, as Pam's so politely said, and wish that, you know, that's something that we could do in our, in our own neighborhoods and wards. And so um, thank you to those listeners out there who are, who are being there for us and are showing compassion. Jim, if you ever want to start a YouTube channel or a podcast called walking with gays, just let me know. I'll help you produce it. We'll capture the, I will capture that men bonding time and release it to the world. You know, I have to comment on that if that's okay. You just did something that is I appreciate so much. Humor <laughs> has the ability to heal. It can go too far sometimes, but when it's done well, like you just did, it can diffuse so much of that shame. And I think that can actually start uh, the friendships to, to develop is that if you can just break it down with a little bit of humor, it's awesome. Uh, and then I'm, if it's I'm okay, bummed. I, I was joking, but, uh, but let's move on. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I'm we should. Just kidding. And uh, I will, to- I will totally save you. Like, I will <laughs> make beautiful desserts. And... <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, it, it's okay. There's uh, a couple of other. Yeah, we wanted we wanted to ask and make sure that you that we're not just going to wrap it up. We want right. you guys, yeah. uh, whatever else you you want to say, let's do it. I wanted to talk a little bit um, about Pam is that one of the things I think how we have navigated this uh, faith crisis or just my leaving the church is that I'm still very supportive of her role in the church. That's important to her. Therefore it's important to me. It is hard in that the same church that she loved growing up, was not the same for me. And so I, I, it, it takes a lot of work to navigate and have those difficult conversations. But I do, at, at the root of every conversation, interaction we have, I want to support her and let her know that I, I, I will walk this journey with her. I might not be in the church building uh, with her, but uh, I want to be an emotional support for her. And she's doing the same for me. She knows that when she's at church, I'm, I'm out in the mountains. I'm communicating with God on, on my level. And I, I love that she, she's my biggest ally. She's my, she's my champion. And then uh, one other thing I wanted to add about things that people can do to help the LGBT community is... Try not to talk to them as if they have a disability. 
try to find all of the amazing qualities that they have and that how they can contribute because people sometimes misunderstand that when someone identifies or comes out uh, that they want to leave the church. Like, no, no, no. They want to be a part of it. Help them become a part of that. They bring qualities that the members need, uh, unique qualities. They're great at feeling empathy. They're great at going out and finding the one, those who are struggling and those who are comfort. They can complement those wonderful qualities that you have. And they need you. Just pull up a chair and let them sit with you. Just see them. Acknowledge that they're there. And then become friends with them. Uh, it's they're, they're an amazing group who I've come to love very, very much. Love that. Pam? Um, I would just say the reason, too, that I was wanting to do this and pushing to do this was that growing up, I had no idea that I was being judgmental towards an entire section of the population. If you would have asked me, you know, four years ago, if I loved all of God's children, I would have told you, yes, of course I do. I'm, I'm nice. I'm not judgmental. I'm not any of these things. And I had no idea how, how much I had been growing up. And so I have hope that there is a huge segment of the population that just don't know people like my husband and don't know how awesome and amazing he is. And if they sat down and had a conversation with him, that a lot of the hate that is out there could go away because they would realize what an amazing person he is and what amazing people are out there. And that is what I am hoping can change is one conversation at a time you know, one little bit, because I had no idea how prejudiced I was against an entire section of the population. And I don't think that means that individuals are, are bad, or they do, they're not doing it intentionally. But that's what makes it really, really hard. If I know someone who's my enemy, uh, and they say hurtful things, it's easy for me to deal with that. Because I don't put a lot of value in that relationship with that other individual. But when it comes from somebody that I love, that is really difficult to process. And when they don't realize what they're saying or how that could come across to someone in my situation, it's really hurtful. But at that point, it's really all important for me to give them the benefit of the doubt say if they knew they were in the company of someone who dealt with this they would act differently and i know that's true because those who i've come out to have shown some of the greatest compassion um, to me i i i never questioned their love for me they chose me they chose that they, they they let they went out of their way to let me know that i belonged Jim and Pam, thank you very, very much. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is such an important episode that so many people are going to enjoy. You know, there's, I would say it of those that are listening, there aren't very many that are in the same situation as you, but so many points of wisdom that you have shared have 
so much relevance in almost everyone that is listening, whether they are Relief Society president, full believers, yeah. atheists, apostates. Uh, there's, there is so much wisdom in what you just shared. And that's how those bridges are bridged. That's how they're formed is by saying, oh my gosh, I can relate to so much that Jim just said, and I am not in the same situation as him. So thank you very much for being so, you know, all the cliche words, vulnerable, authentic, brave, yeah. courage, jumping on here to, to tell everybody in the tightrope land your story. So thank you. Thank you. And can I just say it has been a privilege to be by his side and watch how hard he has struggled so many mornings and yet he gets up and he goes through his day and he does it. And it has been an honor to just watch the grit and the determination that this man has. <laughs> your love is shining through. <laughs> I love it. They're hugging. You can't see it, but they're hugging. Oh, <laughs> Practice what you um, preach. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. If you would like to give any feedback about this episode, please send us an email at marriageonatightrope at gmail.com. Because Jim and Pam are anonymous here, but if you would like to, to share your feedback with them, just send it to us. We'll make sure that they get it. I'm sure that they would appreciate the, the kind words. Thanks so much. Don't leave just yet. Jim has a little bit more to share with all of us. Give you a little rundown of how things work here at Marriage on a Tightrope. When we do an interview, we record it, I edit it down, I send it to the couple or the individual that we're interviewing. They either give us the thumbs up to release or they ask me to remove a part where they said someone's name, etc., etc., etc. In this case, after listening to it, Jim and Pam, Jim specifically said that there was a message that he wanted to share that he forgot to share on the episode. So I'm going to read it for him now to end our podcast today. Earlier, I spoke about the reasons I chose to leave the church. One of those reasons was the toll continued participation in it was having on my mental health. Similar to what I experienced as a child and young missionary, I continued to feel the constant need to justify my place in the church and longed for a sense of belonging and real response. This unhealthy mindset only caused my anxiety to grow, my depression to deepen, and was impacting my physical health. My continued participation in the church was, in a very real sense, killing me. I hope my family, friends, and ward members do not broadly dismiss my decision to leave because I did not keep true to the faith and that I simply gave up on the path to eternal salvation because it was too difficult. I chose to step away from the church in order to save my life. I took no formal action in leaving. For me, it was a simple shift in mindset where I made the decision to no longer allow the church to have control over my relationship with God. I know that will sound strange to some, and people will probably say that the church does not exercise such control over people because it is an organization that welcomes all and teaches salvation is freely available to all of God's children. True, the battle of belonging that goes on in my head is, in part, due to the fact that I have a mental illness and view things from a negative perception as a defense mechanism. I am seeking professional help and am taking active steps to address this. Equally true, however, is that I am a product of my upbringing and a survivor of trauma. I am not alone in this. There are parts of my story that are unique to me. But I hope I have adequately conveyed that when it comes to belonging and self-value, I am not alone and there are many LGBTQ members who have similar struggles. My sincere hope is that members will take the time to reflect and humbly ask themselves, are there any common denominators to all these stories that are coming to light? 
It is difficult to describe, and perhaps heretical for some to hear me say, how liberating it was to step away from the church. The closest I can come to describe the feeling is that I felt life, something I had not felt in years. I could finally breathe. That constant battle in my head finally stopped, and as my brain began to quiet down and my muscles relaxed, clarity of thought came, and the healing process finally began. Through that simple shift in mindset, I reclaimed control over my life by setting some long overdue boundaries with the church. It was no longer an organization to pass through in order to have a relationship with God. Rather, it became one of many tools that I can choose to use to enhance my relationship with him. Put another way, I now possess the ability to tell the church to mind its own business. So how do I envision my future relationship with the church? I'm still in the process of figuring that out. What I do know is this. While I have stepped away from the church as an organization, my relationship with the members will continue. I realize there are people within the church that will never truly accept LGBTQ members fully. At the same time, I am aware that there are people who will never see the steps the church has taken toward inclusion as being enough. Despite that, I still have hope because it does not represent the vast majority of members in my opinion. There is a large group of people in the middle. Given my admittedly limited experience in coming out to a small group of friends, I sense a sincere desire to show love and acceptance to the LGBTQ community based on the response I received. I have been a first-hand recipient of that love, kindness, and compassion. While my friends do not always agree with my views, I never doubt their genuine love and concern. It would also be hypocritical for me to demand tolerance and compassion if I am not willing to extend the same courtesy to members of the church myself. I sometimes, all right, often, get frustrated with what I consider to be slow progress in making space for LGBTQ members. However, when I look back, I am surprised at just how many things to be grateful for. There is no doubt that the church is a different environment than what it was when I was a child, with some of the most significant progress coming in the past few years. Members are learning to apply what the Savior has always taught in scriptures, which is that true discipleship requires more than just giving lip service when it comes to including those that are different. They are learning that making room for LGBTQ members is not selling out doctrine. Quite the opposite, it is embracing it. In saying all this, I do not excuse the past. In fact, I personally believe the church would provide much-needed healing by simply acknowledging that it has not always gotten it right when it comes to the complex issue of homosexuality. I have respect for those who do not hide from or ignore the past, but acknowledge it for what it was and commit to do better in the future. In my own personal journey, I do not want to discredit or criticize anyone who is sincerely trying to include and make space for me and my LGBTQ brothers and sisters at the table. I have not always been great at doing that, but I sincerely want to be better at showing my appreciation for the such efforts. Lastly, I want to say that one of the biggest wins for me in this is that I continue to be friends with many people in the church. They have shown me that friendship is not contingent upon being an active member or even a member at all. Another win is that, with the exception of bishops, I no longer view my relationship with members through callings. I offer three simple and recent examples as evidence. One, a friend who happens to be the second counselor in a ward bishopric asked me to go to dinner the other night because I looked tired and he wanted to know if I was all right. Two, a friend who happens to be the elders quorum president texted a spiritual message the other day, not to preach, but to ultimately reveal his feelings of inadequacy as a father and a desire to be seen by another father. And three, my best friend, who happens to be a ward clerk, is as straight as they come and represents the salt of the earth, was brave enough 
to ask me about suicide because, as he said with tears in his eyes, he wants me to stay. That, my friends, is Christ-like love in its purest form, to which no value can be assigned. As far as bishops are concerned, I still communicate with mine and others that I know. They are my friends, but I see them through their calling first because of their influence over others. I speak to them primarily to offer my perspective on matters discussed in this interview. I am annoyingly persistent, but am also fortunate enough to have had them ask me questions in their sincere quest to make others in their ward feel welcome and loved. To actually witness the details of those conversations make their way into talks and lessons given over the pulpit is not only something that I thought I would never witness in my lifetime, but provides real hope that things have and will continue to get better. So do I think bridges exist between those who have left the church and those who remain? Yeah, lots of them. I cross a different one each day. When it's done, we're gonna see that it was better That we grew up together Tell me you don't wanna leave Cause if change is what you need You can change right next to me When you're high, I'll take the lows You can ebb and I can flow We'll take it slow And grow as we go 